Hey gang, this is Father Fred Gatchett. I am the pastor at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, as well as the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. And you are listening to the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and our flagship station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on, on Divine Mercy Radio, we are bringing you the faith. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And just to kind of map out what I'm going to try to accomplish here in the next hour or so, is um, to have an overview of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, kind of where we're at and you know where, what are some insights as to how we can best benefit from this great gift of our Lord. And then, after that, there's going to be three different examinations of conscience. There will be one for kids. You know, I, I would say probably those that have made their, their first confession up till about, I don't know, age 15 or so. And that will be based on the Ten Commandments. And then we'll have another examination of conscience for the youth. Youth being, again, nothing really sacred about these age demarcations. But let's say youth being 15 to say, I don't know, you know, 20, 25, something like that. And then adults will have another examination, examination of conscience for adults, um, which would be, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 and older, whatever it is you want to call it. My guess is that if you listen to the entire program, well, I'm sure we'll hear from adults saying, well, the Ten Commandments one for the little kids spoke to me better than the one for adults. And maybe the young people will say, you know, I like the adult one better than the youth one, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit anyway. But um, we invite you to just sit back for a little bit because um, this will take probably about an hour and um, for you to be able to you know, get yourself something to drink, get a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea or whatever it is you want, and, um, and sit down and have a listen, and we'll see where this takes us. So again, the first piece that I want to talk about is just the Sacrament of Reconciliation in general. And um, the biblical basis for the Sacrament of Reconciliation primarily, I think, comes from the Gospel of St. John, um, chapter 20, whenever Jesus appears to the apostles on Easter Sunday night. And it says on that first day of the week, on the evening of that first day of the week, in other words, Sunday evening, Jesus rose from the dead Sunday morning. It says Jesus appeared to the apostles, even though the doors were locked um, for fear of the Jews, and said to them, peace be with you. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the risen Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Who sins you forgive, they are forgiven, and who sins you retain, they are retained. And so there's a big piece of it right there. There's where Jesus commends to his apostles his own authority as God. Remember, Jesus is God. Jesus passes his own authority as God onto his apostles, mere human beings who are not God, to be able to announce God's forgiveness for sins, which is what we do in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And so that's one important piece there. Another thing, a lot of times, you know, people will say, well, it doesn't say in your Bible, confess your sins to a priest. Well, it doesn't say in the Bible not to either. And again, you have Jesus giving to the apostles, the first bishops, his authority to announce the forgiveness of God. And then, of course, the bishops from the Acts of the Apostles would invite the presbyters or the elders or the priests of the church to participate in that ministry. And so that's pretty much biblical there. But then I always say, well, okay, if you want to do what the Bible says, let's do what the Bible says. And if you go to the letter of James chapter 5, James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. 
Ooh, who wants to do that? I've always had a lot of fun with this over the years, especially when you're dealing with younger people. And um, if I'm given a retreat or something and I have a microphone and I'll say, okay, and I'll point them out, get, find some kids sitting in the front row and offer them the microphone and say, you want to go first? And they look at me kind of odd. I say, well, it says here in the Bible, confess your sins to one another and you want to do what's in the Bible. So here you go. Here's the microphone. Stand up and confess your sins to the group here. And of course, they just look at you, this look of horror on their face. And I'm going, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, going into that confessional doesn't look quite so intimidating, doesn't it? And so again, well, what is James telling us? James is telling us that we have to acknowledge that there is a communitarian aspect to reconciliation. That um, it isn't just something that's a private matter. That there's going to be that my sins affect one another and my being healed from sin will also benefit other people. And so that's why, you know, James tells us confess our sins to one another. There would be a, a community aspect to it. And then finally, in, in the letter to the, in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, you know, St. Paul is telling about the, about the sacrament of the Eucharist. And later on in this presentation, we'll see about the connection between Eucharist and confession, how they're intimately tied up together, mostly because of this piece from, from 1 Corinthians, where St. Paul says, For I received the Lord from my hand on to you, namely the, the, day, the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said to them, Take this all of you and eat of it. This is my body, which is to you. Likewise, after supper with the cup, take this all of you and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood in the new covenant, which will be given up for you. Um, and, and so whenever we eat the bread or drink the cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Now, that's all well and good. But after that, St. Paul goes on to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. Now there, St. Paul, with very, very few words, um, gives us two extremely profound truths. Truth number one is that the bread and the cup truly is the body and blood of Jesus. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup unworthily is answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. Not some symbol, not some representation. But then he says, examine yourselves. Well, where, does that where is that examination going to take place? It's going to take place in confession. This is why the church teaches, based on the writings of St. Paul, we have to be in the state of grace before we can go to communion. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, again, with this connection between um, Eucharist and, and confession. And so, you know, we, we see here in, in St. Paul's writings the necessity to be in the state of grace if we have fallen from mortal sin. Now, it's important to remember, if we have venial sins, going to communion in a repent, with a repentant heart Holy Communion takes away those sins, takes away the venial sins. As Pope Francis has said, you know, the Eucharist is medicine for the sick. It's not a prize for the perfect. And so, you know, when we're sick, our venial sins make us sick. We go to communion and the, the receiving communion with, with a repented heart takes those sins away. In the state of mortal sin, the soul is dead. And as we know, you can take a, a dead body and you can pump all the medicine into it that you want and it's not going to do any good. And so before we can receive the medicine, the Eucharist, that's going to do us any good, if sanctifying grace has been lost through mortal sin, that has to be restored by the sacrament of reconciliation first. And then we go to communion. Okay. And so, um, again, I just wanted to start off, you know, looking at those two pieces of scripture. 
you know, seeing how, you know, how, how, you know, it is outlined for us in scripture, the necessity um, to go to confession. Now, again, we can look at it as, well, you better go to confession or you're a bad person. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I think what Jesus know, knowing as God, he knows what our human nature is. And he's going, you know, they're going to need some help. Um, before I come back as, as judge at the end of time, they're going to need some way to be able to pick up and go on after stumbling and falling because we're weak human beings. And that's why he gave us this sacrament. Now, again, one of the ways we can look at this is sin. That's bad. You sin. Therefore, you're bad. Um, I don't know if that's very healthy, very helpful. I think as opposed to God wanting to mold and form us into it, that which he knows is best for us. And if we look at, at reconciliation that way, I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, in our day and age with, with, our, with medical stuff, you know, we hear um, the big call for wellness, you know, that, that if we're practicing, you know, a regular, you know, regimen of diet, of exercise, and you're know, eating right and getting the right amount of sleep and getting some exercise and, you know, balancing, balancing our work and our play and everything, you know, it, it leads us to a life of wholeness, um, which is the basis for the English word holy, um, that gives us to a life of holiness. Whereas if we just look at the medical establishment as, I'm going to go off and do whatever I want, and when I get sick, I'll go to the doctor. Um, that doesn't do us much good. And the medical community has been, you know, railing against that for quite some time. And so I think if we look at our spiritual health, the way many of us are now starting to look at our physical health, we can see that what the sacrament of reconciliation is, is that it's a proactive, not a reactive, although it does work reactively, but it can be a proactive way to keep us spiritually healthy and keep us, you know, on, in spiritual balance. I mean, it's kind of like I think a lot of times we think that in our heart, there's one of those old-fashioned slate tablets, like what kids used to use in school back in the, in the frontier days. They have a, a little slate that's about, I don't know, like eight inches by eight inches. And, and they would sit there in class and the teacher would say, okay, you know, what's six plus nine? And all the kids would write with a piece of chalk, write 15 on their slate and hold it up for the, church, for the teacher to see it. Well, again, I think that's the way we look at it. We think that inside us, we've got this slate, and every time we do something bad, there's a mark that gets put on it, and then we go to confession, and it gets all wiped clean. Well, that's true. I mean, that, that, that does happen. If we, you know, when, whenever, we, whenever we sin, you know, there's, you know, it's bad news to be sure, but then at the same time, when we go to confession, you know, those sins are, are wiped clean. We're made once again, pleasing in God's sight, sanctifying grace that we first got a baptism has been restored and it's all good. But at the same time, I think that if we look at confession as an opportunity for us to step back, look at our life and with the Holy Spirit's help, become more conformed to Christ. I think that's a much more helpful way to look at it. And I think that, again, if, if we're just looking at confession as, well, you know, it just, it just reminds me of how bad I am. And so then I have to go in for this, this humiliating confession of my faults and wait until I get my absolution and just endure the whole thing till it's over with. Well, again, I think that's how people, you know, who haven't taken care of their health, look at their next visit to the doctor. Oh, the doctor's going to tell me again, I got to quit smoking, I got to lose weight, I got to get more exercise and so on. I'm not really looking forward to my trip to the doctor. As opposed to if we've been doing what we're supposed to do and the doctor says, hey, you know, your lab work looks good, you know, blood pressure's good, heart, lungs all sound good, good for you, keep it up. Well, again, same deal. That, I think that's why we have to look at confession. I think historically, if you look back over the past, Eh, I don't know, 
70 years or so, we've seen confession kind of in a downward spiral. And that is fewer people are going to confession. And so, you know, back during the 60s and 70s, I'm okay, you're okay, kumbaya, everybody feels good about their choices. Oh, sin, that's kind of a harsh judgmental word. I might have made some bad choices, but some counseling will get me through that. As a result of that, fewer people started going to confession. As a result of that, priests cut back on the confession times, which signals that confession is not that important, and so fewer, fewer people go. And then it just, you know, it, it spiraled down like that. Now, there's some good news that's coming up in a minute, but that's kind of how we are now. Now, couple with that, fewer boys and young men are experiencing confession and seeing lines of people going to confession, then the vocation that God may have put into their soul languishes as they see one less reason to explore that vocation. Again, I'm just going to pick out, you know, when I was at St. Joseph's for all those years, St. Joseph's Parish there in Hayes. You go into St. Joseph's Church there, and there are four confessionals, okay? And they were, you know, the, the, they were the two of them were the old-fashioned style confessionals where the, it looked like three telephone booths stacked up against each other, and the priest sat in the middle, and the penitents came in on each side. Well, you know, back in 19, I don't know, 48, you know, there would have been a house full of Capuchin friars there, and on Saturday afternoons, there would have been four friars there in the church, in those four confessionals, hearing confessions with lines of people coming to go to confession before they would go to communion on Sunday, okay? Well, imagine the impression that would have made on a lot of boys and young men's, you know, head as they go and they see these lines, they're going, gosh, you know, this confession thing is kind of important, and the only way it happens is through the ministry of an ordained priest, and I've kind of maybe thought that maybe God's calling me into this Maybe I should look at it. But now, you know, you go into a lot of the newer constructed churches and you go, where is the confessional? You know, if, if you can even find the dang thing. And, you know, back in the old days, you know, confessionals were a prominent part of Catholic church architecture. Nowadays, they appear to be hidden and you have to, you have to go hunt them down to try to find them. But nonetheless, again, I think that as we saw confession kind of go in this downward spiral, fewer and, people, fewer, and fewer people going to confession, Fewer confession times being offered, reinforcing to people that confession is not that important. So even fewer people go, so even less time is offered for confession. And then, you know, we get, we get that, you know, that mess that we're in now. Also, the current mess that we have with only one third of practicing Catholics believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation that we're going to talk about the connection between Eucharist and confession. Um, probably by, by now, a lot of you have heard of the research that was done. And, and this is important because it's one thing when they go out and just ask the average schmo on the street, hey, are you Catholic? Yeah. Can I ask you some questions? Sure. And so they ask, you know, just any schmo on the street who claims to be Catholic various questions about their belief and their practice and so on. And then they come back and go, well, you know, Catholics agree with abortion at the same, you know, percentage rate as America at large. Catholics agree with same-sex marriage as the population at large and so on. Okay, which is true. But then cut it finer. All right, now, the next time when you ask the question, okay, you say you're Catholic, how often do you go to Mass? Okay, and the encouraging part has always been when you say, okay, well now, with people who say they go to Mass on Sunday, you have a much lower percentage of people who go to Mass on Sunday who say they believe abortion's okay. 
You have a much lower percentage of Catholics who go to Mass on Sunday who believe that the so-called same-sex marriage is legitimate, okay? But the scary part was when they went out and did this particular study or poll or whatever and said, okay, do you go to Mass on Sunday? Yes, I do, every Sunday. Okay, well, very good. Now, that little wafer you went up and got, what is that? And two-thirds of Catholics who go to Mass on Sunday said, oh, it's a representation of Jesus. It's a symbol of Jesus, okay? So you only have about a third of Catholics who believe that Christ is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the forms of bread and wine in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The rest of them, you know, two-thirds of Catholics, church-going Catholics, say it's just some kind of a symbol or representation. Now, back when no one would consider going to communion on Sunday, without having first gone to confession on Saturday, we had over 85% of Catholics believing in the real presence. Now that no one goes to confession, because of course no one sins, then why believe that little wafer is anything but a symbol? As confession goes, so does Eucharist, okay? And so again, I think that it's, it's important for us to um, reestablish the importance of the, of the sacrament of reconciliation because only with that is going to come a renewal in the appreciation of, of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And I think one of the reasons for this is, is that if you stop and think, if I'm telling myself on you know, Friday evening before I go to bed, oh, dang it, I got to get to confession on Saturday if I want to go to communion on Sunday. And again, sometimes, you know, do people need to go to confession every Saturday before they go to communion on Sunday? Not necessarily. But there's, there's another aspect of, of confession. The church requires us to confess our mortal sins at least once a year. That's the code of canon law, precept of the church. We have to confess our mortal sins at least once a year. But canon law and the church also recommend, strongly recommend, the frequent confession of venial sins. Now, if venial sin is taken away by receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist, why go through all the bother of going to confession? Well, the main reason is, is every time we leave the confessional, we leave drenched, our whole you know, soul drenched and dripping with grace and with a couple extra buckets of grace to spare, okay? You know, the, the Holy Spirit lavishes upon us, pours out upon us, you know, his, his grace for the forgiveness of sins. And so, you know, it's a good deal. And so the, the, the thing is, is, is frequent confession of venial sins, you get grace for free, which is a great deal, um, but also, as you know, walking out of the confessional like that and having reviewed those venial sins, venial sins have a very pesky way of turning into mortal sins if we're not careful. If we're kind of rationalizing in our head, well, I mean, the thing you hear anymore is, yeah, I admit to sin X, whatever it is. I'll make it real practical here. Yeah, I admit I drank too much on Friday night when I was out partying and and, you know, I did some things with the boy or the girl that I hooked up with that I shouldn't have done. But it's not like I killed somebody. It's not like I killed somebody. And, or, you know, yeah, you know, we were sitting around the break table at work the other day and everybody was talking, you know, smack on, you know, Bob or Susie Q or whatever and, you know, ravaging their reputation and so on. Everybody had good, but it's not like we killed them. Well, that's the deal. It's without frequent confession our conscience gets very dull and just very numbed to reality that we just start falling into this deal in that as long as you didn't kill someone, everything's okay. Well, it's not. And so again, that's one of the things that, that confession helps us with. The good news is this, 
The good news is young people. And when I say young people, I'm talking about probably the eh, 15 to 25-year-old demographic, somewhere around there, kind of high school and college kids, seem to have rediscovered the value of confession. One of the things that we're seeing, it's it's one of these deals where, to me, the numbers just don't add up. But um, we keep, you know, again, on these same polls, like the one I just told about with the 66% of Catholics that don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. You also hear these discouraging polls all the time about how the you know well you know the young people are leaving the church in droves you know people are young people don't find the church relevant to their lives they don't find mass and sacraments and the priest homily and so on they you know they make it sound like you know the the church is just you know bleeding to death at the same time go to the national catholic youth conference in indianapolis that they hold every other year tens of thousands of high school kids from around the country descend upon some convention center there. And in the evenings when they have the reconciliation services and so on, the lines to go to confession are long. Or you have the Fellowship of Catholic University students. Every year they have what's called the SEEK conference, S-E-E-K. And you know, tens of thousands of college students descend upon wherever they move it all over the country. And again, the lines to go to confession of these things are long. World Youth Day, every time they have World Youth Day, millions of young people from around the world show up to see his little, you know, little old man in a white cassock, that is the Pope, and what he has to say. And while they're there, the kids are celebrating their faith, they're receiving communion, and they're going to confession in droves because there's always lots of priests at World Youth Day. And so there are just lines and lines of, of, of young people, young people going to confession. And so one of the things I learned with my 19 years of working at the Catholic Campus Center at Fort Hay State. And um, and you look here in, in our diocese, how they just recently rebuilt a brand new campus center over at, at Kansas State University, St. Isidore's. I mean, these places are crawling with young people. The same young people that they keep telling us have decided that, you know, the Catholic faith is irrelevant to their lives. And so, like I said, to me, the numbers aren't adding up. And uh, the uh, kind of this new Pentecost that's going on right under our noses, if we just have the eyes to see it, there's this new Pentecost going on as more and more young people are rediscovering the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So that being said, now we're going to you know, jump into the part of this program where we're going to have three different examinations of conscience. The first one will be for you know kids who have received their first confession up to, and again, I'm just pulling these numbers out of the air, you decide what's best for you. But I'm saying from like seven years old, because that's about when they do first confession, to maybe, you know, beginning of high school, you know, 13, 14, 15, something like that. Then the youth one, um, which would be based on the Beatitudes, would be for kids maybe 14, 15 to, yeah, 20, maybe something like that. And then adults would be, you know, maybe college age and above. How about, how about we work with that? Let's see what, says, see what happens with that. So let's look at our Ten Commandments. Well, first, before we can do an examination based on the Ten Commandments, we have to know what the Ten Commandments are. We find the Ten Commandments in the Bible in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and that's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And then Moses repeats them in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
And so there they are. You can look them up. But let's just kind of go through these kids and see if we can apply these. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. And I remember myself when I was a little kid doing First Communion Catechesis at Holy Cross Grade School in Hutchinson, Kansas. And, you know, we had Dominican sisters that were teaching us back in those days. And we were going through, they were teaching us the Ten Commandments because we needed to know them for First Communion. And I remember at that time thinking, you shall have strange gods before me. Well, that one's just out of date. I mean, who in Hutchinson, Kansas, puts up a statue of Buddha or a dragon or, you know, something like that and lights candles in front of it and pretends like that's their God? That's just silly. No one does that. And um, it's one of the things in life I could not have been more wrong about. Um, the, the, the prohibition against idolatry is number one because it's the number one thing that does us the most hurt and the most damage. And that whenever we think there is something more important than God, you know, whatever it is we worship, to worship is to serve. And whatever it is I serve, that's what I worship and that is my God. And so, you know, maybe one of the first questions I could ask myself is, is there something that keeps me and my family from going to church on Sunday? This will be intimately tied up with the third commandment to keep away the Lord's day. But if there is something that keeps me from going to church on Sunday, you know, maybe I belong to a traveling basketball team or, you know, some kind of a, you know, baseball team or something like that. And it's just like, well, on these particular Sundays, we have games and I can't get to church. Okay, there's your false God. Okay, basketball or baseball, whatever it is. That's your idol because that's what you're serving. You've prioritized that. You said, this is more important than the third commandment. This is more important than me giving thanks to God. So that would be an example of having a false God of putting some other lesser thing before God. Um, there's other things too. You know, people talk about people that worship money or worship science and things like that. That's all true in that, you know, someone worships money. If someone says, well, it's more important for me to make money on Sunday, you know, working or whatever it is I'm doing, then to go to Mass, then yeah, that, that we've made that our idol. Now, sometimes, you know, if you're a, an emergency room nurse or a, you know, a police officer, you know, some folks don't have any option. You know, they have to work on Sunday for the, for the good of the rest of us, but that's a kind of a separate topic. But, um, but the first question to ask ourselves is, is there something in my life, have I allowed something in my life to take God's place? Or have I allowed something in my life, probably what we more often do, is I, have I allowed something in my life to share the throne with God? You know, not saying that I've gotten rid of God entirely, but I want this other thing along with God. And it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. The second one is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, you know, in biblical times, what that meant was don't commit perjury. Don't go in front of God, you know, don't go into court or something and say, I swear to God to tell the truth. In other words, when we say that, what we're saying is, if God were here right now, he'd back me up on this because he knows everything. And he would say, he's telling the truth. And so when we get in, when we get in front of court or sometimes people say to their mom and dad, you know, where have you been? You know, who broke the window, whatever. You know, oh, I was just out with my friend. I didn't break the window. I swear to God. Well, if we're going to say that, which we should not do, it's called taking an oath. Um, we should not do that except under the most solemn and, 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 and serious circumstances, then it better be true. Um, because that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. 
Now, along with that, St. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, says there should not be any silly or suggestive talk. And, um, and there he's talking about, you know, people that make crude jokes and, you know, use bad words, you know, and things like that. And the church has always kind of hooked St. Paul's teaching there up with the second commandment. Um, the second commandment requires us to respect the name of God and to only use it, you know, to call upon God like in prayer. And if we have to take some kind of an oath like in court or something like that, that we only, you know, use God's name like that in the most solemn and serious of times. The third commandment, just got through talking about that, to remember to keep holy the Lord's day. What does that look like? I think for most folks, what keeping the Lord's day would look like is we would get up in the morning, you know, do it as we do, you know, get our shower, get dressed, you know, and so on. And then from home, start keeping the communion fast. That reminds me before I even get to church, Oh, I was going to take that one more bite of donut before I left the house. Or I was going to take another, get another glass of milk, whatever it was. No, can't do that because I got to have my communion fast. We have to have an hour, fast an hour before receiving communion. Not an hour before mass starts, but an hour before receiving communion. And so the idea of keeping holy the Lord's day is first I would go to church, but I would prepare for going to church by observing that communion fast even before I leave home. Then, after I go to church, I come home, maybe have a nice Sunday brunch or whatever whatever the case might be, and take some time to go outside and play, enjoy a nice afternoon. The other thing that's good to do on the Sabbath, and we're keeping the Sabbath rest, is to take a little bit of time to think about greater and higher things than just you know the basketball scores or what I think the stock market's going to do on Monday or whatever the case might be. You know that we would think about higher things. That we would think about you know salvation and you know Mary and the saints in heaven. You know things like that. You know higher and nobler things because the rest of the week we're going to be distracted by all kinds of earthly things. Sunday's a good day to to think about that. Then we have the fourth commandment: honor your father and your mother. Um, that one is pretty straightforward, except that it changes over time. It's one thing when you have an eight-year-old, you know, for an eight-year-old to honor their father and mother, it means do what they say, right? And so if, if, if mom and dad expect certain things out of us, they expect our rooms to be cleaned up, they expect us to help clean up after supper, you know, whatever it is, then we need to do that because the fourth commandment says honor your father and your mother. It might mean another thing, though, when we're 28 years old. You know, once we become adults, it isn't like, you know, when mom and dad call, you know, we have to do exactly what they say when they say it, like we did when we were eight. There's room there to discuss it. But, you know, once we become adults, then we're responsible to ourselves and, you know, we have to do what's right. And, and again, I think most adults say no. It's like, well, if mom or dad asks for it, I'm going to do everything I can to get it for them because it's the right thing to do. But then, like, what happens when mom and dad are 89 years old, you know, and maybe starting to have some dementia and so on? You know, again, honor your father and your mother means something completely different there. And so we can see that commandment, you know, follows us through life. And um, and honor your father and mother, this is based on Romans chapter 13, where St. Paul tells us that part of being a good Christian also means being a good citizen, and so we, it, we have to honor our father and mother, and as the church puts it, an all lawful authority. And so, you know, when, when the state legislature passes a law and they establish the speed limit or they pass a law establishing what our income tra- tax rate is going to be or whatever the case might be, you know, when, it, when, when government passes legitimate laws, 
Now, sometimes the government passes laws that are not good and that are not right. And then we're obligated to participate in the system that we have to get those laws fixed. And um, if they're really bad laws, to get them off the books. But nonetheless, honor your father and mother means honor mom and dad, but also all lawful authority. And so the other lawful authority would be our teachers at school, um, you know, the priests in the church, you know, and so on, the bishop um, that we have to honor and we have to respect all, you know, parents and lawful authority. Um, the fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Well, hopefully, you know, for our kiddos here, nobody's out there killing anybody. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've also talked about a little bit earlier, we talked about people's reputations. You know, we might not kill them physically, but we can kill them spiritually. Um, we can be cruel to people. We can tear them down. We can insult them. We can call them names. We can exclude them from our circle of friends and do things like that, which, it, again, it might not kill them physically, but it can, you know, seriously, you know, damage them, perhaps, you know, in, in, in their mind and their heart and their spirit. And so, you know, the, the prohibition against killing, it's not just about killing the body. It's also about killing the soul. You know, I can set bad example. What if I set bad example and lead someone else into mortal sin? I've just helped kill their soul. And so the, the fifth commandment is more than just cold-blooded murder. The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. For, for younger people, that's not really an issue in the sense that we're not married. In order, to, in order to commit adultery, you have to be someone who is married, who enters into some kind of a sexual relationship with another person who is not your spouse. Well, since all the kiddos aren't married, in a certain sense, they really can't commit adultery. But again, relying on the writings of St. Paul, the church is also always connected with the Sixth Commandment, the, the requirement that we mean purity, and that that purity has to you know, take effect in, in the way we act, the way we talk, the way we dress, and so on. And, um, and so the, the purity that we see from the, that we're admonished to, to look to from, from the Sixth Commandment is that, but also, and again, you know, it's really sad, but even with younger kids, I'm younger ones, I'm talking five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, the things that a lot of the kids have been exposed to on their telephones and on the internet um, is very bad, very bad stuff. Um, there's all kinds of sexual activity and things like that that people see on, uh, on movies and, and again on their phones and on the internet and that young, more and more younger people are being exposed to this. And so all you little kids that might be listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. It's out there. Um, most of you have been exposed to it to some extent or another at a very young point in your life, which is very sad, but that we have to make, be very careful that we're staying away from that bad stuff. The seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Obviously, that means don't go into the store and take something that doesn't belong to you without paying for it. Um, or, you know, stealing something from, you know, your classmate at school or whatever. But it also means things like do your own work. You know, that, um, you know, we can copy somebody's homework. Well, that's stealing the work they did. We didn't do our own work, all right? And so in, in copying homework or cheating on a test or something like that, you know, those are all, you know, different ways in, in which we take things that are not legally and not lawfully ours. And so that, that's a form of stealing. And so um, the, that's something I think that we can think about, about the various other ways that that, that particular commandment can be broken. When we, you know, we, we take information, we take someone else's work, we take you know, something that somebody else did and, and, and benefit from it ourselves without their permission, um, that's you know, stealing just as much as it is to go in the store and you know, take a candy bar or something like that without paying for it. Um, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
That one's something else too. That one's kind of hooked up actually with the second commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Back in the old days, back in the days of Moses, all it took to convict someone in court was the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so if two or three people got together and said, okay, let's gang up on you know, Carl over here. We don't like Carl. And so we're going to gang up on him and we're going to make some false accusations about him in court. And according to the law of Moses, if the testimony of the three of us agrees, they're going to find him guilty. All right. And that's why, you know, back in the day, it was important, just like it is now, that if someone goes to court, they have to tell the truth because the court is going to base its decision on the testimony of people. And that testimony has to be trustworthy. And so not bearing false witness against your neighbor was intimately tied up with the second commandment of, of not committing perjury. That we have to tell the truth, especially when somebody else's life and well-being is hanging in the balance. Now, we've also hooked up to that, to the, the requirement that we not bear false witness. We, you know, we just have hooked up to that just sense of lying in general, that we have to tell the truth, you know, no matter what the deal is. Now, the important thing to understand here is, is that this, get the, you know, listen to this carefully. We are obligated to tell the truth to those who have a right to know it. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. We are obligated to tell the truth to those who have a right to know the truth. If someone does not have the right to know the truth, I don't have to tell them the truth, okay? So an example is this. You know, what if someone comes up to me and they go, oh, Father, you know, I saw John Smith going into the, you know, to the cathedral offices last week. Did he come and talk to you? Well, maybe John Smith made some, made an appointment outside of normal times to come into my office and go to confession. That happens quite a bit. And so the thing is, because of the seal of confession, um, and furthermore, you know, if John Smith's coming to my office, that's between me and John Smith and nobody else. And so I would not answer the question. I would just say whether or not John Smith came, that's, you know, irrelevant um, because that's private information, okay? And so the, the idea being that um, whenever, you know, we are obligated to tell the truth to those who have a right to know it. If this person does not have the right to know the truth, I do not have to tell them. You know, here's another example that's um, a little bit more um, tame in that, you know, what if, what if some girl, you know, some 15-year-old girl, she goes to the store and she goes, oh, I'm going to get my mom this, this cool thing for a birthday present. This, I think, will be a good birthday present for my mom. And so she goes out and buys it and comes home. And the mom says, oh, Susie, where you been? Oh, I went to the store. Well, what'd you get? Oh, I had to pick up some shampoo and stuff. And the mom goes, oh, okay. Now, did Susie just lie to her mother? Yeah, because what's in the bag is mom's birthday present. Okay. But did Susie do anything wrong? I don't think so. Okay. Because... At that point, you know, moms, dads, adults, you know, they kind of had this universal right to know what's going on. But in this particular case, by Susie not telling her mom what's in the bag, it isn't like she's denying her mother a critical piece of information to which her mother has a right, you know, because she wants to surprise her on her birthday. Now, on the other hand, what if mom is a little bit suspicious of Susie? And, and Susie says... Yeah, I just went to the store and I picked up some shampoo and, you know, a couple of things and so on. And the mom goes, no, young lady, what is in that bag? Now, Susie has to tell, okay, because mother has made a direct request. Mother has that authority as mother and Susie had better show her what's in the bag. 
Mom, it's your birthday present. I was hoping to be a surprise, but here it is. Now, Mom's probably going to feel bad about that. But in that particular case, Susie should tell what's in the bag. Okay? So, again, I think that if you want to commit anything to memory, just remember, we are obligated to tell the truth to those who have a right to know it. Not everybody has a right to know the truth. Therefore, I do not always have to tell the truth if someone is asking me something for information to which they have no right. Okay? But the rest of the time, we tell the truth. And that's, again, what we've come to associate with the Eighth Commandment. The Ninth and the Tenth Commandments are admonitions against coveting. We shall not cover your neighbor's wife. You shall not cover your neighbor's goods. And you know what's that going to mean? Coveting means to desire something so much so that if I don't have it, I'm upset. Okay, and I might even be upset at you. I mean, I might see the friends you have, because it's not just about our neighbor's wife, it's our neighbor's relationships. You know, maybe I see the friends you have, and I'm jealous because I wish they were my friends too. Or I see the stuff you have. You know, maybe you have a nicer house or a nicer car than I have, and that makes me upset. Well, that's what it means to covet. And we can see that really doesn't do us any good. And that's why we have to kind of stay away from it. So that's my little examination of conscience for young kids um, based on the, on the Ten Commandments. Now we're going to do the youth examination of conscience based on the, on the Beatitudes um, from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. And what I'm going to share, I wish I could take credit for this because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, there, there's a philosopher named Peter Kreeft. And um, he took, the, he took the, the Beatitudes one time and, and took them the way Jesus intended them. You know, I think, you know, we hear the Beatitudes and we think, okay, bless the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom of heaven. Bless the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Bless those who mourn, you know, they were, you know, so on. And we look at that and go, oh, we know all that. I don't think we do. Because when Jesus came up with the Beatitudes, this wasn't just a random list of things that sound nice. He was with laser precision going after things that people think are important and just picking them off, you know, turning them on their head. So in our culture, you know, there's this, there's this insane desire to acquire wealth and unlimited quantities of it. And over and against that, Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. That is to say, blessed are those who are not controlled by what they want. Blessed are those who, are, who control their possessions, not those who are controlled by their possessions. And again, I think that when we look at our desire, you know, we might have a, you know, our, our cell phone that we've had for the past, and I think I've had mine for almost five years, and it works just fine. Um, I could go, it's like, oh, but you know, I need to have the latest, you know, iPhone or whatever. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be unhappy. Well, then I'm not blessed. I'm not happy, am I? And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor. You know, blessed who are those who can be content with what they have. The other thing, the next one, is in our culture, you know, we consider the conquest of nature with science and technology to be one of the greatest goods. And over and against that, Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek. You know, you know, we, we, we look at, um, you know, science and technology have done great things for us. There's no question about it. You know, the wonderful world of medicine and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when we think that, you know, whenever the, um, the you know, science and technology serve us well, and, and then when we don't have them, then we get mad. If you want to see an example of this, think about the last time you lost electricity at your house. You know, it's like, oh, I can't. I was in the middle of watching my favorite show. How am I going to finish my TV show without electricity? And Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek. 
Bless those who don't let that stuff get under their skin. The other thing is, if you look over the past 150 years or so, and you ask, you know, what is the greatest invention of these past 150 years? Peter Kreeft, and I agree with him, says, probably the greatest thing we have is anesthesia. That is to say, that we can be free from pain, okay? That we can, you know, you can go to the dentist and get your tooth worked on, and your mouth might be a little bit sore, but it's not near as sore as it would have been without Novocaine. You know, and that we can put people to sleep cut them open, fix them up, sew them back up, and you know they don't feel a thing because they were under anesthesia the whole time. And so freedom from pain is a great thing. But then at the same time, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, blessed are those who can mourn. Blessed are those who look around and they see things that aren't right and they go, this isn't right. And it, it hurts that it's not right, okay? Because that's what motivates us to set it right. Then, oh, the next one, self-esteem. I love making fun of the culture of self-esteem whenever I'm teaching at school. In that we think self-esteem, you know, if I have high self-esteem, this is, you know, the path to happiness and self-fulfillment and so on. And Jesus says, no, bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, bless for those who hunger and thirst to be in right relationship with God. Okay? Now, again, as an examination of conscience, you know, the accumulation of wealth, the desire to conquer nature with science and technology. I want to be free from all kinds of pain. I want to feel good about myself. You know, these are things we can think about when we're going to confession. And the next one, justice. You know, we want to secure our rights. I have a right. And if I don't get this right, I'm going to sue someone. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the merciful. You know, let's, let's, let's try to show mercy instead of, of being so demanding of, of, of strict justice and getting what I do, you know, getting what I demand is my rights. Next one in our world that's consumed with um, sexual gratification, Jesus says, no, bless the pure of heart. You know, instead of, you know, people, you know, our, our eyes being consumed with, you know, what they use to sell everything from toothpaste to beer or whatever on TV, to say nothing of the, the pornography pandemic that's going on. Jesus says, no, bless the pure of heart. Blessed are those who maintain purity in their heart. And how well are we doing with that? Then, in our culture's desire for success and winning and conquest, and, you know, we, we, you know, everybody loves a winner. And Jesus says, no, bless the peacemakers. Is there anything wrong with wanting to win our basketball game? Nope, nothing wrong with that at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, being a peacemaker, someone that brings the peace of Christ into difficult situations instead of conquering them. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to pummel you in this argument. I'm going to send you home with your tail between your legs. Jesus says, no, being a peacemaker is going to get us a lot further. In a world where we want honor, acceptance, and fame, everybody wants to, you know, be famous and so on. Jesus says, no, bless those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Bless those who are persecuted, trying to attain right relationship with God. Okay? And then, as opposed to a long and healthy life, which is what people you know, aspire to, Jesus says, nope, here's the cross. You know? And so, again, I think we can look at those Beatitudes and, um, and look at the, at the, you know, there's the Beatitudes that Jesus gives and the corresponding warped things of the world that he's, that he's speaking out against. And we can see that, you know, that makes a pretty good examination of conscience. Our last examination of conscience is for the adults. And what I want to do with this is a little bit different. We talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. The sin of commission is what is sin that I commit. 
And so if I commit the sin of lying, if I commit the sin of theft, if I commit the sin of, you know, dishonoring my parents or whatever, those are things that we do, okay? And so we do something bad, that's a sin of commission. But then we also have what are called sins of omission. And these are things we don't think about very often. And that is there are sins that, that we commit by failing to do what we should have done, all right? And um, you know, we say this when we say the confiteor at Mass. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, in what I have done, sins of commission, and what I have failed to do, sins of omission. Now, the interesting thing is this. When you look in the Gospels, and whenever Jesus talks about people being in hell, they're not in hell because they committed adultery. They're not in hell because they committed murder. They're not in hell because they told a lie. They're not in hell for what they did. They're in hell for what they failed to do. Okay, Jesus talks about sins of omission. Okay, and so one, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says, there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in these flames. But Abraham replied, my son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from your side from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they may not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone goes back from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses, the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So there you have a sin of omission. Why is the rich man in hell? Because he's rich? Nope. Because he ate well and dressed well? Nope. Why is he in hell? For what he failed to do in reaching out to the poor man Lazarus. He is in hell for a sin of omission. If you go to Matthew chapter 25, there are three parables in that, in that chapter. And I'm not going to read them all, but you probably know them all well enough that I can just refer to them. First parable is the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. Back in those days, whenever people got married, there would be the, the proposal of marriage where the, the man would propose marriage to, to the woman. She would accept and they were considered to be betrothed. And then sometime, a few months, maybe even a year later, then the bridegroom would go to the bride's house, get her, and take her back to his house. And once they went into his house together, then the, the marriage was considered to be consummated and, and they were totally and fully married. And so it was, the, it was a celebration. You know, people were having a good time with this. And so the, the people are all at the bride's house waiting for the groom to show up, and the groom doesn't show up and everybody falls asleep. And so when they say, oh, the groom's here, the groom's here, and all the bridesmaids wake up and they're trying to light their lamps, 
because they're going to have this fun procession over to the groom's house with their little oil lamps. And then um, the foolish virgins say, we haven't got enough oil. Give us some of yours. We don't have enough. We don't have enough for the both of us. Go buy some. So they go off to buy some. And then when they come back, they find that the, you know, the, the party's already gone. And they go over to the groom's house to join in the rest of the wedding party. And he says, sorry, you can't come in. And so they're left outside. Now, why are they left out in the cold? Is it because they did something wicked or evil? No, it's because they were not prepared. What did they fail to do? They failed to be prepared. You and I don't know. God could call the world to an end before this broadcast is over with. You might, might not get to hear the end of my presentation today on Catholic Radio because God brings the world to an end. And at that time, we can't go, oh, wait, God, um, hold on to the end of the world here for just a second because my brother and I, my sister and I, we haven't talked to each other in decades, and I want to go mend fences with them, and then I'll come back and be judged. Can't do it. It's done. You know, when God calls the world to an end, you play the hand you got. You know, oh, wait, Lord, um, <laughs> let me get back. I saw a priest back there. Let me go to confession real quick, and I'll come back up, and, and we'll talk about this judgment thing. Doesn't work that way. You know, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. In other words, I don't think we're going to be aware that we are being judged. I think in an instant, we're going to find ourselves in heaven, hell, or purgatory, and we're going to go, oh, I was judged. Okay? And we have to be prepared. The next parable in Matthew 25 is the story of the guy that's going off on the, um, on the journey and he calls his servants in and he gives one of them 10 talents, the other one five talent, the other one one talent. Um, back then, a talent was a, it's like a, it was a measure of precious metal. In our economy, we use the troy ounce. You know, the, the gold and silver is sold by the troy ounce. Back in those days, a talent was actually quite a bit. It was between 40 and 60 pounds. And so let's just take the middle and say 50. So he gives to the first guy 500 pounds of gold. He gives to the second guy, he gets five talents, he gets 250 pounds of gold. And the guy that gets, one, the, guy that gets the one talent gets 50 pounds of gold. That's still quite a bit. Then the guy goes off, comes back, and the first one comes in and says, Master, your 50 talents have gotten you 50 more, or your 100 have given you 100 more. Here they are. Hey, well, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in your master's joy. The second guy comes in. Well, your five talents have gotten you five talents more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come in your master's joy. Third one comes in. I knew you were a hard man. I took your talent and dug it a hole and buried it in the ground. Here's your money back. Get out of my sight. Hopefully we all know that story well enough without me having to read the whole thing. So again, what is there there? There's a sin of omission. There is a failure on the part of the guy to maximize what God gave him, to do something with it. What this is telling us is on the day of judgment, whether it's the particular judgment at the end of my life or the general judgment at the end of the world, if I'm standing in front of God saying, you know, God, you know, you didn't make me as smart as you made her, or I didn't have the connections he had, I didn't have the opportunities they had, I just wasn't as good looking as him or her or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, here's what I did. It ain't much. That's not going to fly. You know, what the second parable is telling us is that these various excuses that we think we might have on the day of judgment, they're not going to carry water. You know, the, the dog ain't going to hunt. And so um, we have to maximize what God gave us, do what we can with the, with the talents that he gave us, knowing that God does not distribute his talents evenly. 
I mean, some people get more, some people get less. Also that we can use them the way God wants us to. And so again, to not use what God has given us in a way that brings glory to God is a sin of omission. And finally, from Matthew 25, you've heard it all before. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. Um, in prison or in, 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 in sick, you took care of me. You came and see me. Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? What you did for at least my brothers, you did for me. Then off with you to the, you know, you accursed to the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. Naked, you gave me no clothing. A foreigner, you gave me no welcome and so on. Well, Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and a foreigner? It's what you did not do for the least of my brothers, you did not do for me. Those go off to eternal punishment while the righteous go off to eternal life. So again, at the end of time, what, what do these people get consigned to hell for? Is it for what they did? No, it's for what they did not do. They did not reach out and, and try to help out their neighbors who are in need. So again, you know, I'm kind of hoping that, you know, by looking at these various examinations of conscience of the Ten Commandments, that, you know, that's going to help anybody, but try to have that more towards the kids. And then with the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus' blueprint for, you know, putting ourselves in right relationship with God and with neighbor. And then with adults, sins of omission. Probably not something that we think about too much. I think we think more about sins of commission. You know, we, we go to confession, we confess what we did, and we're not really that good about confessing what we failed to do. And, um, and, and even though in, in the mind of Jesus, that seems to be pretty important. So I hope this little reflection on an examination of conscience and the sacrament of reconciliation and what a great gift it is for us, how it helps us to truly become sons and daughters of God is helpful to you. Again, you are listening to the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and the, store, the station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And so we thank you for tuning in to Divine, Divine Mercy Catholic Radio. Um, feel free to check out our website at dvmercy.com and see what's happening there. Until then, God bless and um, keep the faith.